Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I am Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek. To me, the word geek suggests an obsessed hobbyist, and that would be true in my case. On the one hand, I'm utterly fascinated with the Bible. On the other, I do not revere the Bible as divinely inspired and authoritative. I used to, but perhaps ironically, it was avid study of the Bible that eventually convinced me it was not the Word of God, and the loss of religious faith in the Bible made it both more interesting and more understandable. I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there is nothing more pious than understanding the text. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, what say we try to understand it together? Uh, first question from my old Lovecraft pal, William Fulweiler, a pioneering scholar in, uh, in the works of H.P. Lovecraft, by the way. He says, Christians often criticize atheists for believing that the universe was created from nothing. How do they square this with their belief that God created the universe ex nihilo, from nothing, right? Uh, Well, I think their initial claim that you can't just have uh, something from nothing is really trying to say that it couldn't have just popped up. Uh, that, uh, that in a sense, they're they're coming kind of close to believing that uh, in panentheism that God uh, created the world out of his own being, but they don't want to say that. Uh, they, what they're really getting at is that there must have been not prime matter, uh, but a divine creator who could call it forth out of nothingness. I believe that's the point, but technically, you know, you're right. Uh, it's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, uh, right? And uh, but I think that's the the issue. Now, I don't think that is a contradiction, but it's there's something just as bad going on there because it is an attempt to explain one mystery by means of another. Uh, because if you say, well, it couldn't have gotten here without a creator. Uh, so there must have been one who was always there. Uh, where did this creator come from? Little kids ask this all the time, right? God created everything, but who created God? Uh, not a bad question, right? The the point is, uh, what is this creator you're talking about? Uh, every religion admits that uh, the, the divine being, whatever it is, is unfathomable and indefinable. 
so what are you saying? Uh, what created the world? What designed the world? Uh, until you can make sense of God, you, you've really got no explanation. And I don't think anybody has yet done that. So that that is the real problem, I think. Uh, let's see here. Um, here is one from... Uh, ooh, uh, from our pal Luther. He says, I wonder if you've been following the story of the Shapira document or were familiar generally with it prior to this news. In short, Moses Shapira claimed in the late 1800s to have purchased from a Bedouin a document found near the Dead Sea. The document, apparently related to Deuteronomy, was quickly claimed to be a forgery. The documents disappeared, and Mr. Shapira killed himself or was murdered. I learned of the situation through James Tabor, and just one day later, the New York Times ran a story about a scholar proposing that the documents weren't forgeries at all. Um, uh, well, there there are a couple of uh, addresses for online articles, but... Uh, that's it's sort of interminable to try to read them and get them right. I'm sure you, if you looked up the, the uh, uh, Moses Shapira, S-H-A-P-I-R-A, uh, on Google, you'd, you'd find something about this. I heard about this a long time ago, and uh, I uh, had gotten the impression even back then that some people thought that he got a bum deal and that it was um, something like the uh, documents discovered in the Cairo Geniza and, and then later the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know of other things uh, in the same general area, like the guy that started the Karaite movement in Judaism, uh, David Ben-Anan. Uh, he uh, apparently found some some uh, Qumran-type documents and uh, said, hey, this doesn't sound like rabbinic Judaism. This must be closer to the real thing. Let's follow it. And there's still Karaite Jews who do. So I have a sneak in. Oh, and, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? There were people uh, in the early days of that that said, ah, they're, they're medieval, which doesn't mean they're, they were forgeries, but these critics couldn't believe that they were as old as they turned out to be, right? So I would not be at all surprised if it turned out that it was genuine, though apparently, you know, we don't have it anymore. Uh, and and uh, being related to Deuteronomy, well, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, like the Manual of Discipline, appear to be kind of a, a new Deuteronomy uh, that was in the air. The Gospel of Luke, its central section is a, what I call uh, clumsily a Deutero-Deuteronomy. Uh, as C.F. Evans pointed out long ago, it's it certainly seems to correspond uh, to most of the topics treated in the book of Deuteronomy and in the same order. Uh, and uh, that just can't be uh, a coincidence. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about this. And I appreciate the, uh, the leads there. Uh, I want an article by James Tabor. 
and another a New York Times story. So yeah, it'd be interesting to find out what uh, what the deal was. A similar controversy goes on with uh, these ten codices, or were they led? Yeah, forget. Uh, found uh, in in the Middle East somewhere uh, that. Uh, promised to uh, throw some more light on the early belief in Jesus. And uh, a bunch of people immediately jumped on it and said, no, no, these, these things are forgery. But I happen to know a couple of people, Samuel Zinner and Margaret Barker, who represent a, a group who has been studying these things and thinks they're, they're legit. So I'm waiting for more to come out on that. Uh, and... Uh, but you you do have to raise these questions because there have been various forgeries done in recent years, uh, and uh, so it's sometimes tough to to uh, be sure that it is like the Gospel of Jesus' wife, as moderns call it, just a postage stamp with a few letters on it, but a few lines. Uh, and uh, Karen King was uh, promoting that, but it turned out to be a forgery. Um, many people think that the Morton Smith secret gospel of Mark was a modern forgery. I tend to think it is, though, as I've explained before, I hope it is not. That would open up some interesting possibilities. Um, even the gospel of Judas, uh, my uh, pal uh, and Jesus seminar colleague, uh, Richard Arthur, did an interesting article suggesting that that was a modern forgery. Uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, now, uh, who's uh, who's this? Uh, Brian Babcock uh, works at Babcock Winery. I think he's busy changing uh, jars full of water into wine there. says, I'm currently listening to Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. I'm a few hours in at the point where he mentions scholar Michael Martin and at least one of Martin's historical mistakes. I understand that Martin is no longer with us. While I was doing a little background search on him, your name came up as a person who thinks and writes in this field. You are still with us, making it a bit easier for a guy like me to pick your brain. Um, yeah, I, I did know uh, Michael, a wonderful fellow. Uh, uh, my question for you is, what is your general take on Strobel and his case for Christ? It pretty much sounds to me like his main point is going to be, because there is so much real evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament, everything in it is true, including various miracles and the existence of the Trinity, etc. Uh, if nothing else, it is essentially a recap of true eyewitness events. Uh, it's all baloney. I've, I think you would enjoy reading my book, The Case Against the Case for Christ, uh, published by American Atheist Press. This is a prime example of what and why I uh, do in the way of polemics against apologists. I uh, purposely uh, avoided calling my book The Case Against Christ because I have no such case to make. Uh, the Case Against the Case for Christ is an attack on all the ridiculously lame arguments he uses for gospel authenticity and so on. It's just incredibly shameful. It's every crummy 
shoddy argument that apologists have been using to, uh, I would, I don't know if this is their intention, but in effect to trick readers to tell them, oh yeah, you, you can trust that stuff, so you ought to accept Jesus as your personal savior, as if the New Testament ever said such a thing. But I would uh, really give that kind of uh, capsule answer. Take a look at that book because every chapter in it is filled with fallacies and errors and so forth. So the case against the case for Christ by uh, uh, yours truly. So, okay, thank you, Brian. Okay, this is from uh, Art Comenio, a long-time listener to the Bible Geek. He says, I can explain the idea behind Bayes' theorem in a way that anybody can understand without using any math. I think uh, Art is uh, reacting to many statements I've made over the years that uh, my brain just freezes whenever this topic comes up. And I just, uh, it's too mathematical for me, but he's saying, well, it doesn't have to be. So here, here again, here's art. It simply, com the theory simply compares an expected probability with a measured probability to draw a conclusion about whether or not the expected and actual probabilities agree. Uh, in the simplest possible example, an honest coin should land on heads very close to half the time if flipped a large number of times. If we flip a coin a large number of times and finds it, that it lands on heads most of the time, when the numbers are plugged into Bayes' theorem, it will be revealed the coin is not an honest coin. Uh, in a similar way, an honest die should land on one of six sides very close to one-sixth of the time if tested a large number of times. The problem with the way Richard Carrier uses Bayes' theorem uh, is uh, um, it will be revealed that the coin... I'm sorry. Wait a second here. I'm having trouble scrolling here. Yeah, I'm sorry, let me start that paragraph over again. The problem with the way Richard Carrier uses Bayes' theorem is that he uses estimates for probabilities that are subject to argument in place of measured probabilities. Not everyone agree, would agree with Carrier's estimates of expected probabilities versus actual probabilities. For example, if you estimate the probability of a human being I'm sorry, of a human being resurrected as zero, then Bayes' theorem will certainly show, quote, mathematically, unquote, that it never happened. But you can make the argument for the improbability of resurrection without shrouding your argument in a haze of mathematical calculations. Bayes' theorem is intended for use where probabilities can actually be measured, not just estimated. 
so Carrier misapplies it to try to give the appearance of mathematical certainty to things that are merely estimates, and thus subject to interpretation. In my opinion, Carrier misapplies Bayes' theorem, which was designed to treat measured probabilities rather than estimates. Um, I don't know if I am repeating this or if Art did. Uh, I don't agree with the way Carrier, quote, proves, unquote, his guesses mathematically using probabilities that are subject to large disagreements. I believe he unnecessarily complicates his works when he uses math for things that are not subject to mathematical modeling. He certainly confuses and turns off many readers, thereby costing himself a large chunk of readership. When Stephen Hawking was writing A Brief History of Time, he was warned that each equation he included would cost him half his sales, so he managed to treat some very complex issues without including any equations. Richard Carrier would do well to follow his example especially because he can, as Hawking did, make exactly the same points without equations as I did in my coin and die examples. Well, that does seem pretty clear, Art. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, so, the I mean, you, you already do have enough data about the dice and the coins uh, to uh, have more than just an estimate. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I said, whereas, uh, you know, how probable is a resurrection? I, I mean, <laughs> how are you going to attach anything to that? Yeah, so, yeah, that, that does help me a bit come coming closer to understanding. Ooh, let's see. Uh, uh, who, who sent this next one? Jacob Wilbur's. I wanted your opinion on a strange religious view. The Zodiac Killer had a strange idea that people he killed would become his slaves in the afterlife. Do you know of any source for this view besides insanity? Uh, the Z340 Zodiac Cipher was solved last year. If you would indulge me and read the solution in your best villain voice. Uh, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber, because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me, where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid, because I know that my new life will be an easy one in paradise. Life is death. I, uh, have not heard that, but it does kind of remind me of what uh, the Egyptian pharaohs believed, that their possessions would accompany them into the uh, afterlife, uh, you might say, spirit doubles of them. 
um, because they believed in resurrection, though not of the body that was wrapped up as a mummy. Um, but they, they were uh, killed with slaves because they believed the slaves would accompany them and continue to serve as slaves in the afterlife. Now, he might have gotten it through that. I don't know. I don't really know anything about the Zodiac Killer. But uh, it's conceivable. He, he fancied himself uh, something of a pharaoh and uh, thought he had recruited a, a servant staff by killing these people. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jacob. Oh, right. Uh, this is from Brent in Tennessee, another longtime Bible geek. Um, I have a couple of questions for the old geek. Both pertain to the assembling of the New Testament. For the purposes of these questions, I will refer to the church fathers who determined what books are in the canon and what books are out as the assembly. I'm going to refer to them as the assemblers. I realize that this assembly happened over a period of time and in various councils. Uh, question one, did the assemblers of the New Testament predetermine that it must have 27 books because of the Trinity? 3 times 3 times 3 equals 27. I'm almost certain I have heard Dr. Bart Ehrman talk about this. Uh, well, on that, I, I have never heard that, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a well-informed guy and a great researcher. Uh, I, I do know, though, that there were such considerations because um, in uh, about 180, in his work against heresies, Irenaeus said, well, there have to be four and only four Gospels. Um, uh, for a very simple reason. There are four winds, aren't there? Uh, there are four corners uh, of, of the world, right? Well, <laughs> there's got to be four Gospels uh, and no more. I got to admit, uh, that is just one of the stupidest arguments for anything I have ever heard. And, and the, we, the fact that this guy, who was quite intelligent, as you can tell from the rest of his work, would resort to nonsense like that at least shows that this is an after-the-fact rationalization. Uh, it certainly was not uh, the real reason anybody uh, decided there should be four Gospels. Somewhat similarly with the... Um, uh, epistles of Paul. People got the idea that you should have seven letters in a collection of epistles, and they pointed to uh, Ignatius's epistles. Uh, and there are three different versions of that collection, but in uh, one of them, no, in two of them, there are seven epistles. Uh, the difference is that one group has longer texts in each of the seven than the other does. Then there's also a, a third set where there are 14 of them, I believe. And that's interesting because that's double seven. Um, the book of Revelation opens with seven letters to different churches, right? So uh, they thought something's going on here. 
uh, even though the book of Revelation was the last one to be accepted, uh, the Eastern churches thought it was a bunch of hooey, uh, but it, it was about 600 AD before they admitted that that was uh, scriptural. Um, but uh, with Paul, there are seven letters with his name on them, right? I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, there are 13 with his name on, on them. Uh, the epistle of the Hebrews sounds kind of Pauline, though the Greek isn't exactly the same as any of the other ones, and uh, and the theology it's sort of compatible with uh, Paulinism, but uh, it says weird stuff that sounds more like the Dead Sea Scrolls than Paul. And, of course, Paul's name doesn't appear. Nobody's name appears on it. Uh, and uh, But uh, if it were Pauline, that would give us 14 Pauline epistles, and that's two sets of seven. Uh, and so some people said, okay, Hebrews must be by Paul then, and let's let's have it in there, because that was controversial, too. The Western church didn't care much for that one. In fact, the way I've read it, I think, uh, was that it was kind of a trade-off. The Eastern church would be willing to accept Revelation if the Western church would accept Hebrews, and they said, okay, done. Uh, but uh, this, uh, the Trinity, I, I don't know. I mean, the time would would have been right. People were beginning to talk about the Trinity. Uh, but I, I don't happen to run across that. But if, if Bart said it, uh, I believe it, that settles it. Or at any rate, I, I take it seriously. Uh, question two, was a big reason that the book of Revelation was included in the canon uh, because the assemblers thought it was written by the same author as the Gospel of John? I'm almost certain you've mentioned this before. Uh, yeah, though not everybody did. For instance, uh, Eusebius, who is writing while the contents of the canon are still up for grabs, he speaks of four different categories of writings considered canonical or not by uh, most bishops and scholars. And uh, there's the, uh, the, the apostolic writings that uh, he f figured, you know, taking the, the names in their traditional meanings, were by apostles or just as good as apostles. Uh, and then there were uh, borderline books that didn't seem to be unorthodox, but didn't exactly have an apostolic uh, pedigree, like the Gospel according to the Hebrews and uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, for instance. Uh, and some thought, yeah, they should be in there. Um, and uh, somebody like Eusebius, who's a big fan of Athanasian Christology, which became Trinitarianism, uh, he didn't think there was anything wrong with them, but admitted that there was a little uncertainty there. Uh, let's see, then he said there were um, uh, dubious works, like, uh, oh, I guess maybe the Gospel of the Nazarenes and so on, and uh, finally, there were what he called heretical forgeries. I discussed this at more length in the introduction to my uh, collection, uh, the pre-Nicene New Testament. Now, Eusebius himself apparently rejected Revelation because he didn't believe in chiliasm or uh, millennialism. 
uh, the the idea of literal premillennialism that there would that Jesus Christ would come back and um, end the tribulation and have a literal thousand year reign on earth. Uh, he said, "No, no, I, it's uh, that's kind of crazy stuff." Uh, uh, and uh, people would say, "Well, look, uh, says so in the in the book of Revelation, uh, written by John, the son of Zebedee. It's apostolic. Uh, come on, don't you trust him?" And he said, "Well, uh, actually, Papias, whom he didn't think much of generally, he refers to a John the Elder." who was among those who had heard the apostles teach, but they're like second generation. And he said, I bet you that uh, the book of Revelation was written by John the Elder, not an apostle. Uh, so uh, there's room for, for uh, doubting or denying apostolicity, as they said. Uh, and uh, and a lot of people thought that, uh, and that it was not just an ad hoc argument, because anyway, it cut it. Though the Gospel of John and the so-called three epistles of John sound, uh, they have a lot in common, content-wise and style-wise. Uh, though there's a debate about whether the same person wrote all of those, but but even if it wasn't then you're still dealing with somebody in a common community that had its own lingo and so on. But uh, the, the, the revelation of John, the apocalypse of John, there is no way the same person wrote that. Uh, the Greek in it is, is crude. Uh, in the Gospel and Epistles of John, the, uh, the Greek is very simple but, but lucid. Uh, it's uh, it's sort of like a clear pool you can see right to the bottom of. It's not complicated, but there's great depth to it, and, and it's grammatically correct. But the book of Revelation, did this guy really know his Greek very well? Doesn't sound like it. Uh, and uh, any way you cut it, it's, uh, it's totally different uh, in, in the accent of the Greek, you might say, and even in the theology. Uh, in uh, First John, you read about how many antichrists have come, and in the book of Revelation, it doesn't even use that word, but it speaks of two satanic beasts uh, who seem to correspond with Leviathan and Behemoth. Uh, and uh, again, there's this, this millennialism in there. Well, uh, it just uh, doesn't sound like it's the same guy. And so there were reasons for not having it in, but uh, you know, you know, they decided, uh, yeah, it would be good numerically, so let's put it in there. I'm sure glad they did. I, As I've said before, I'm a big fan of the Book of Revelation. I think it is just tremendously fascinating and uh, just poetic, even in the apparent crudity of the Greek. It's just terrific stuff. So, thanks, Brent. Mm, let's see here. Uh, this is from Nick Everett. Oh, Everset. Sorry. I almost skipped a letter there. I was wondering about the dating of Paul's letters. 
Could they have been written much later than the conventional dating of the 50s A.D.? I imagine that proto-Christian ideas would start to gain much more traction after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. As such, could this be a time when the hopes of communities that Paul is writing would be springing up? I'm sorry, I uh, can't read today. As such, could this be a time when the types of communities that Paul is uh, writing to would be springing up? Could this be when Paul was writing to them? As I understand it, dating of the epistles is based on the uh, type of historical events he doesn't mention uh, and should have, uh, thereby arguing that he must have written before that date. For instance, the fact that Paul doesn't mention the Neronian persecutions in the 60s. Would this also explain the apparent gap in time between the Pauline letters and the second century church fathers? What if the gaps between the various writings were kept the same? Uh, I'm, sheesh, what's the matter? I had words now. If the gaps between the various writings were kept the same, we would expect Mark to be written in the 90s, Matthew slash Luke Acts around 100 and, uh, to 105, and John at 120. Let's say it's the geek. Well, uh, I do think that the uh, Dutch radical critics, uh, W.C. van Maan and uh, various others, were right in saying that the so-called Pauline epistles were written in the late 1st to early 2nd century. Now, Schleiermacher started the ball rolling in uh, the, uh, the mid-19th uh, uh, century uh, because he argued very effectively that um, the so-called first epistle of Timothy couldn't have been written by whoever wrote the other Pauline letters or even the other pastoral letters. He was able to show uh, that uh, it looks like whoever wrote First Peter was just trying to make a kind of condensed digest of set Peter, did I say Timothy? Um, it, uh, kind of a combined digest of Titus and Second Timothy, which of course was not called that at the time, right? That's a later editorial convention. Uh, and others have uh, at least agreed with him since, most critical scholars saying that, yeah, First and Second Timothy and Titus are not by Paul, even if the rest are partly because the theology is different, the, word, the use of common words with different denotations like the faith and all that. Uh, the, the church order presupposed in the pastorals is not like the kind of more primitive organizational pattern you find in the, the other epistles. Um, but um, F.C. Bauer pushed it further than that and said, well, really, you can apply the same type of arguments to all of the rest of the epistles except for the Hauptbriefe, the principal epistles, which by his count were, uh, were first and second Corinthians, Galatians, and uh, Romans up to about the middle of chapter 14. 
and that other stuff was added after that. And of course, that's not hard to believe since there are like three closings to the <laughs> to the Epistle of the Romans, and blind people kept tagging on new stuff. Um, and uh, then Bruno Bauer, no relation, and FC, I mean, uh, WM, uh, no, that's, yeah, it's W.C. von Manen, argued, and others argued that, no, uh, you apply those criteria consistently, and you'll find that none of the supposed epistles of Paul were really written by him because they're filled with anachronisms, for one thing. Uh, and like, uh, does is uh, oh, J. A. T. Robinson wrote a book called "Redating the New Testament," in which he argued that uh, the, the whole New Testament was written before the fall of Jerusalem because they none of them mentioned the fall of Jerusalem. Now, how could they not uh, if um, if it had happened? That would be an earth-shaking thing. Uh, well, um, you sure he doesn't mention it? Uh, for instance, uh, in Romans... Uh, oh, um, uh, yeah, okay. Romans 11... Uh, I ask then, oh yeah, Paul, uh, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Uh, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have demolished thine altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Uh, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their feast become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution for them, lest their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Ooh, now, what do we got there? Um, their altar has become... They've demolished the altar. I mean, of course, that's the uh, the quote from... Elijah, but why that quote? That doesn't that. And what could have made people think Christians in in Paul's churches? Why would they think God had rejected his people if this is being written uh, only something like twenty years after the crucifixion, if there was one? Right? Uh, how could this be? I mean, had was there time enough? 
to see that Jews en masse had rejected Christianity? Uh, I uh, don't think so. And then when he quotes this thing uh, from 1 Kings about Elijah, uh, it, it's appropriate because the altar in Jerusalem has been demolished. And, uh, oh, um, and then in verse 9, the quote from the Psalms, let their feast become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution for them. Uh, their feast? Isn't that talking about the sacrifices in the temple on the altar? I don't know, of course. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's not absolutely clear, but if he doesn't mean the fall of Jerusalem, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, and similarly, in Second uh, oh, Thessalonians, there, or is it, no, I guess it's First Thessalonians. Let's see here. Um, flip in these incredibly thin Bible pages. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh. Um, 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 um. Let's see. Chapter what? Yeah, all right. Um, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Um, you, brethren, uh, sorry, again. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all men by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now, you tell me what that uh, was prompted by. Uh, surely that can't mean anything else but the, the uh, fall of Jerusalem, right? Okay, God has finally lowered the boom on them uh, in judgment for their sins, especially persecuting the apostles and crucifying Jesus. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, uh, so uh, now to, to get around this, most critical scholars will say, well, that passage is an interpolation. Well, it could be. I mean, you can make a decent argument for that. I think Winston Monroe thought that. Uh, she talked about interpolations in the Pauline epistles. But uh, you do have to wonder, Is you know how some people trying to hopelessly... Uh, defend uh, the notion that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and then you ask him, well, Moses recorded his own death then? And they say, well, uh, uh, Joshua probably added that. Oh, okay. Uh, that's the ticket. So I don't know, but uh, yeah, and, and the, the anachronisms, um, it, 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 the writer speaks of traditions. He says that the church should... Uh, continue to observe the traditions that Paul taught them. Was there time for that? Tra Pauline traditions? I mean, that, that sort of sounds like you're talking about the past. Or uh, in 1 Corinthians, where um, 
Paul or whoever says, now, I planted the church there and uh, uh, Apollos watered it, but God gave the growth. It's like he's looking back retrospectively at the history of the church. How much of a history could there have been uh, by that time? Uh, and von Manen also said, look at the complexity of Paul's theology. Did, did this come up just overnight? Uh, and so on and so on. It, it just, it, I think there are reasons for really doubting that, uh, that the historical Paul wrote these, because I don't see any, any more problem than there is with saying that the historical Simon Peter, assuming there was one, uh, didn't write any of the works attributed to him, like First and Second Peter, uh, Third and Fourth Peter, which aren't in the canon, uh, the Acts of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter, the journeyings of Peter, the preachings of Peter. Uh, you know, nobody thinks Peter wrote this stuff. Uh, it's just that both Peter and Paul were big names, and people knew that. If they circulated their own writings under their own names, uh, you know, who'd listen, who'd read them, like the, the Gospel of Chad, uh, the Epistle of Biff, you know, yeah, that, don't, don't waste my time, right? So, and, and I do think also that, uh, the, as you suggest, the, the Gospels are written in the second century, a little later than you're placing them. Not much, but I would say that they're, uh, they were written not long before Polycarp and um, and Irenaeus, so well worth looking into. You, you know why um, mainstream scholars resist this? I mean, of course, they might just not be convinced by the arguments, but they also have a predisposition not to buy it because they're they're used to saying that okay jesus didn't say this or that or the other thing like the jesus seminar voted ultimately that only 18 percent of this teaching attributed to jesus in the gospels could credibly be traced back to him well but they they felt as liberal protestants they could do that because they really uh depend on paul and his teaching as an apostle uh, and if you take the approach the Dutch radicals took, you don't know what the heck he really said either. So you're just dealing with texts, and it's hard to say what the authority behind them would have been. Okay, one from Elliot. Um, I've been researching the Hebrew Bible. I was a very conservative Christian in the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm now what I would call a weak deist. I believe there's some kind of intelligence somewhere in the whole process of the universe and life, but I wouldn't call it God. Anyway, I still like the Bible. I've been listening to your study of Moses and Genesis uh, YouTube videos. Uh, they're brilliant. Thanks for them. Oh, I'm glad you like them. I've just read Genesis 25, which says Esau has a second name, Edom, because he gave up his birthright for red stew, which is a ridiculous idea, as nobody would uh, do such a thing, especially in ancient times when birthrights were a big deal. He also just happens to be born red all over. Um, and people think this is real history? 
Just so happens, Edom is a country well known for its red sandstone. So obviously that's why the people living there, uh, uh, I guess opted for the name Edomites, not because of some daft apeth, uh, who gave up his birthright for red stew and happened to be red all over. It's, it's a bit of an odd coincidence that this Esau guy just happened to have so many um, important links to the color red. Obviously a made-up story. You gotta love the Bible even when it's this odd. Indeed you do, yes. Anyway, I'm just interested in knowing if there are any other examples like this that aren't mentioned in your Genesis YouTube video. I'm trying to make a list of a few interesting oddities. Uh, um, yeah, in fact, this, this one is even more strange, though, uh, by the same token, all the more interesting. Because... Uh, it, I think that um, the reason, well, he is considered, uh, Esau is considered the father of the Edomites. Well, usually in Genesis, the uh, supposed founder of a line, um, the progenitor, has the same name. The, the, the tribe or whatever is named after him. Uh, but in this case, like the Ishmaelites or the descendants of Ishmael and, and so on, why are these people not called Esauites? Uh, well, uh, here's why I think, because um, the the, uh, the the Israelites or Hebrews simply were Canaanites. They were the the cousins of of the Ishmaelites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, etc. Same language, basically same religion, uh, and. Uh, uh, the um, and the the Israelites had various versions of of myths. There at least the two creation accounts, right? The the priestly creation account in the first chapter of Genesis and the uh, the Yahwist uh, or J creation account in uh, Genesis chapters two and three. Uh, well, they also had different stories about the first man. Uh, there were different versions of the Adam story. Ezekiel uh, 28 has has one uh, about the fall of Adam. And as I've said, uh, Genesis chapter 2 has a different one. Well, I think that uh, originally Adam uh, was, uh, could, was the same as Edom uh, because, as you probably know, Words in these these cognate Middle Eastern languages were based on sets of three, sometimes two, consonants. And you could uh, switch the consonants around and or vocalize them with different vowels. The, the vowels weren't originally written uh, in the text because people just knew how they were supposed to be said. Well, this means that at like uh, uh, Adam and Edom would have been the same name, basically, just pronounced slightly differently if you had a different accent here and there. And, uh, uh, and uh, so I think that um, once, and that, that uh, 
um, Edom as the father of the Edomites, it was like saying Adam is the father of the Adamites. In fact, that usage does occur. Uh, so um, at some point, they, the, the Bible compilers separated Adam and Edom, but they already had another first man uh, in Israelite myth called Enosh, which means man. Uh, and so it, they juggled the names and the characters. And uh, since Edom had come to be synonymous with Adam, they decided to pick a different name for the ancestor of the Edomites. Uh, and, and to them, the Edomites no longer meant the human race, the descendants of Adam slash Edom, but uh, the descendants of their cousins next door, the Edomites. It is a mess, but uh, I would, in terms of the, the names and what they mean, one terrific book on this is a very old one, uh, though it's, it's been reprinted, I'm sure you can find a copy, is by a, a Hungarian scholar called Ignatz Golzier, uh, I-G-N-A-T-Z, Hungarian form of Ignatius, obviously, and Golzier, G-O-L-D-Z-I-H-E-R, and it's called Mythology Among the Hebrews. It's possible I've misspelled his name, but look under Mythology Among the Hebrews and you'll find something that looks like it. It is quite surprising how the names reveal the original astronomical uh, mythological origin of these various characters, like Samson simply means the sun. It's another version of Shamash, the Babylonian sun god. And, and various other ones. It, it is so interesting. Uh, it's really very eye-opening. So, um, and there are New Testament examples, too. Ooh. Uh, I think I'm going to rest my voice here and wrap it up for today. Kind of a short one, but uh, I didn't want to leave you clamoring for, for another new Bible Geek. Had one up recently, but I figured, eh, i got a little time today, let me do one. And uh, shortly, I will have uh, another new Zarathustra Speaks column up. So thank you for uh, indulging me in all of these preoccupations of mine. Uh, I uh, hope you will avail yourself of a copy of my essay collection, uh, which is uh, titled... Uh, reinterpreting the New Testament, and it's available on Amazon. And I hope you'll keep an eye out for uh, my uh, book due out at the beginning of September of uh, called uh, Judaizing Jesus. Uh, that's going to be a nice controversial one. So, okay, I'll be seeing you next time on another exciting, thrill-packed episode of The Bible Geek. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.